0: Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 28 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. This month marks the 10th anniversary since the collapse of the Lehman Brothers, the largest bankruptcy in American history. The investment bank crumbled during the Great Recession of 2008 as part of the worst economic disaster since the Depression of the 1930s. Now, we covered the recession broadly as part of our discussion about the risks of mortgage lending back in episode 12, but I think that now is a good time to talk about some of the major players involved in the collapse, like Fannie Mae. Ginnie Mae, and Freddie Mac, all of which are in the United States. As we saw in last week's episode, these agencies comprise a large part of the portfolios of many of the biggest investment funds in the world, and we'll also discuss the CMHC or the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. This is all part of our broader conversation about the vast world of investment funds, many of which are reliable revenue producers. If you don't mind, please take a quick moment and subscribe to this podcast. We're available just about anywhere that you can listen to them. I also want to say a quick thank you to everyone who shared this podcast or told someone about it last week. On Wednesday, I had mentioned that we were almost at 10,000 listens and I was hoping to break that number by the end of the month. But as of today, we have now been heard over 10,000 times. So we got there a week in advance and I appreciate you helping me with that. Also, over the weekend, I came out with a new guide called The Simple Guide to Building Passive Income. It's available for free on my blog, so if you want to read it, you can get it at alexisasadi.net slash blog. There is absolutely no cost. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for hanging out with us. My name is Alexis Asadi. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur, and as you've probably figured out by now, I am also the host of this show. The Income Investing podcast is geared towards revenue producing assets in North America, like dividend stocks, investment funds, real estate investment trusts, rental properties, and royalty trusts. But we have listeners from around the world, and I welcome everyone who joins our little community. All right, so what are income investments, and why do we like them so much? Income investments are investments that pay dividends or other cash distributions, typically monthly or quarterly. They are particularly prevalent in the US and Canada, but they also exist internationally. For example, I've noticed that there are a lot of income funds in particular in the United Kingdom. Investing for income can have a few advantages that a lot of us find appealing. First, you can use the dividends to offset some of your expenses. That can take a little bit of the financial weight off of your shoulders. Many people actually invest for income because they want to eventually live off their dividends, and if they can do that, they are then considered to be financially free. Second, many income investments can also appreciate in value. You are not limited to just earning cash flow. Right now, for instance, we're covering investment funds, and a lot of them can produce capital gains. Third, plenty of income investments are publicly traded, meaning that anyone can get into them you can set up a brokerage account and invest in one for under a few hundred dollars. In fact, not only are a lot of investment funds purchasable online, but so are real estate investment trusts or REITs, which we discussed earlier on in 2018, and plenty of others too. And fourth, but not finally, income investments can exist in all kinds of sectors, whether it's real estate or energy or resources or financial services or otherwise. Therefore, it's pretty easy to have a well-diversified portfolio that also pays multiple streams of revenue. Okay, so let's get to a question from one of our listeners. If you've got something to say or something to ask, please feel free to let me know at alexzasadinet slash podcast. And don't hesitate to get off topic. This part of the podcast is carved out for just about anything. So today's question is from Morgan, who is in Roswell in the state of Georgia. Morgan wanted to know if I have any quick and easy secrets about income investing. You know, Morgan, one of the things that comes to mind is how I find random income investments. I just go to google.com finance and type in words like income or income fund or monthly dividend and a bunch of options will appear. I then visit the website for that investment product and just kind of go wherever it takes me. For example, there might be 10 different income investments available from that site and probably 20% of what I discover is actually pretty appealing. As I've said, there are so many income investments out there, this isn't obviously how I find all of them, but it's kind of a fun way to explore randomly. I think a lot of people assume that you have to be some sort of insider to know where to look, but it's really as simple as just going to google.com slash finance. Also, if you're interested, remember that I send an email each month with a list of income investments that all have the following features. They obviously all pay income every month. They're publicly traded, so you can invest in them through a brokerage account. They all have a yield of at least 6%. They all have track records of maintaining stable or even increasing their dividends. And they're trading below their historical highs. So if you want to, you can subscribe to that email by going to alexisasadi.net slash email. Alright, so let's do a quick recap. We're going to start from episode 23, which is where we began our journey into investment funds. In that episode, we established that a fund is a business that pools money from shareholders or unit holders. It then uses their capital to make investments into different assets like real estate or energy projects or stocks or bonds or mortgages or even cryptocurrencies and startups. We also underscored what a security is. We saw that it's a broad legal term for basically any sort of investment product except for direct ownership in real estate. So if you buy a house, You invested in real estate. You bought a property, not a security. But if you bought into a real estate company, then you purchased its securities. Presumably, you own shares in that business, and shares are a form of security. Now, one of the perks of investment funds is that they can provide you with diversification. For example, if you want exposure to mortgages, then you might buy into a fund that invests in mortgages. That way, you could participate in the earnings from dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of individual mortgage loans. Further, funds can allow you to partake in industries that you may not want to or know how to do so yourself. Maybe you don't have the capital to buy an apartment building, so you could instead invest in a fund that buys apartment buildings. In episode 24, we talked about how investment funds are structured. We saw that they are usually corporations or trusts or limited partnerships. So if you invest in any corporation, you're called a shareholder and if you invested in a trust or into a limited partnership, you're known as a unit holder. The following week, we looked at classes or series. We explored why companies and funds issue different types of shares, like Class A and Class B and Class C, etc. The takeaway from that episode was that different classes have different rights and characteristics, like the ability to vote or the rights to certain profits, so it's actually a pretty important concept to understand. Episode 26 dove into the mechanics of investment funds, namely how investors get paid. We saw that management will generally decide how much income to pay out to investors based on various factors like the fund's expenses. As well, we saw why income funds usually own assets that produce consistent revenue, like mortgages and rental real estate or royalty projects and dividend stocks. They typically avoid things like small cap stocks and raw lands, because they don't generate regular cash flow. Without that, it's pretty hard to run a fund that pays income. As well, we saw that investors may be able to sell their shares or their units for a capital gain. That's another profit center. And this is obviously a lot easier if the fund is publicly traded. And last week, we talked about mortgage funds. These are funds that invest in mortgage loans, either by lending the money directly or by purchasing them in the debt market. And today we'll discover a third way that they can do so, through the use of something called mortgage-backed securities. Now in the preceding episode, I had made the comment that investment funds that purchase mortgage loans from lenders are really important to the economy. They allow lenders like banks and other originators to sell their loans, which encourages them to make more loans. Since they can sell their loans, banks know that they have a tool to manage their risk. And instead of waiting for 25 years to get their money back, they can instead retrieve their capital faster and thus lend more. So, therefore, investment funds add liquidity to the real estate market. They indirectly help more people buy properties. So, the same concept applies to what we're going to discuss today Fannie Mae, Ginny Mae, and Freddie Mac, which are abbreviations for the Federal National Mortgage Association the Government National Mortgage Association, and the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. These were all established by the United States government during the 1900s to expand the national real estate market and to promote home ownership. And they comprise a really big part of a lot of investment funds. So how does all of this work? Well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy mortgage loans from banks and other lenders. As a result, Those lenders get their capital back quickly, and they can lend it out to other people, many of whom are obviously looking to purchase homes. In essence, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are enormous providers of liquidity to American real estate. As a simplified example, let's say that you lend $50,000 to a friend for five years so that he can invest in a property. But after six months of earning interest, you instead decide to sell your loan to Freddie Mac for $50,000. The result is that you made a quick profit, you got your 50 grand back with interest, and you can now lend to another real estate investor. You also no longer run the risk of your friend potentially defaulting on the loan. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac own a multi trillion dollar portfolio of mortgages across the United States, but they don't just sit on them for 25 years. Rather, they bundle those mortgages into investment products. This is known as securitization, where you're turning something into a security or an investment. For example, they might gather a thousand loans and turn them into one single product. All of the interest payments from those loans flow up to that product, and this product is called a mortgage-backed security, or MBS. Investors like the BlackRock USA Mortgage Fund, which we discussed last week, can buy into those products and earn income from the interest payments, which ultimately come from the borrowers. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guarantee the performance of those loans, so there's theoretically no risk to the investors. But as we saw from our discussion about the 2008 recession, this doesn't hold up when the markets collapse. As property prices imploded and borrowers defaulted on their payments, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac simply did not have enough capital to prop them all up. Almost exactly 10 years ago, the US government had to inject upwards of $200 billion into them or risk the absolute destruction of the real estate industry. Now, regular retail investors like you and me can't really buy into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's mortgage products. They're typically purchased by massive investors like hedge funds and mutual funds and pension funds. The only way to gain exposure to their products is indirectly by investing in one of those funds. However, both companies are publicly traded, so we can actually invest in them. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac generate profits by charging administration fees for securitizing the loans and guaranteeing their performance. In the first half of 2018, Fannie Mae alone earned a profit of $4.5 billion. Now, in return for the government's money back in 2008, each company had to issue something called preferred shares to it. We're going to talk about those later on. But as a result, they were required to pay effectively all of their profits to the US government. They could not declare dividends to their common stockholders. So if you invest in either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac today, you're essentially making a play for a capital gain. You're hoping that their stock prices will increase. Now, My guess personally is that this will eventually change. The US government has already made its money back from its bailout to them, plus a whole lot more but who knows when or if it actually will. On the other hand, Ginnie Mae, or the Government National Mortgage Association, is actually owned by the U.S. government. The other two were started by the government, but are owned by shareholders. Ginnie Mae is an agency of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. As such, it never needed a bailout. So Ginnie Mae serves the same purpose, to provide liquidity to the mortgage market, thus promoting home ownership. But it does so in a different way. Ginnie Mae guarantees the performance of certain mortgage-backed securities, which amalgamate loans given under programs run by government agencies like the Federal Housing Agency and the Department of Veterans Affairs. When investors purchase those securities, called Ginnie Mae bonds, they then earn income from the mortgage loans. Perhaps the most important differentiator between Ginny Mae and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is that Ginny Mae provides explicit government guarantees. When you invest in a Ginny Mae bond, the US government is promising that you will be paid back with interest. Canada has a similar program which is used to expand its real estate market. The Canada Housing Trust issues bonds to investors and it then uses the proceeds from the capital raised to purchase mortgage loans from large lenders. If those loans don't perform, the trust must still make good in its payments to its bondholders. It's supported by insurance from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or CMHC. So Investors can purchase Canada Housing Trust bonds in the debt market, but it's actually more common for individual investors to buy into mortgage funds which invest in those bonds. Almost every bond fund and conservative mortgage fund that I've ever seen in Canada will own millions of dollars worth of Canada Housing Trust bonds. Now, both Ginnie Mae bonds and Canada Housing Trust bonds are low-risk investments because they're guaranteed by the full faith and the full credit of their respective federal governments. So for that reason, they pay a low amount of interest. And funds that invest in them, like mortgage funds and bond funds, are generally conservative vehicles. So here's what I'd like you to take away from today's show. Number one, the US and Canada each have entities that are designed to support mortgage markets. They try to eliminate some of the risks of lending for large financial institutions, which encourages them to make more mortgage loans. Number two, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Canada Housing Trust each securitize the loans that they purchase from lenders into products called mortgage-backed securities or MBSs. As a result, investors can earn interest from those loans without worrying about default risk. And number three, Ginnie Mae doesn't issue any securities. Instead, it guarantees certain kinds of MBSs, which investors can invest in, called Ginnie Mae bonds. Now, the concepts of securitization and mortgage-backed securities have gotten a bad reputation since the 2008 economic collapse, and for good reason. As you know, banks package bad loans into similar products and dump them on their investors and sometimes even bet against them. MBSs are generally viewed as the result of putting a bunch of greedy bankers and lawyers in a room to conduct financial alchemy. But without MBSs, there would be a fraction of homeowners in both Canada and the US. Lenders would lack a big risk management tool and they'd be even tighter with their loan requirements. They also wouldn't have as much money to lend. As with many things, MBSs shouldn't be painted with a broad brush. If companies are out there securitizing payday loans, then they're obviously going to be introducing a risky product into the market. But turning reasonable loans that help people buy homes into investments is crucial to our economy. That's why I wanted to spend an entire episode on some of the minutiae of mortgage lending. Good income investors have to look at things through a microscope, not from a 30,000 foot view. So next week, we're going to start looking at real estate funds. I think it's going to be pretty appealing because we're going to see how we can access funds to invest in large properties that we might not be able to afford ourselves. Until then, I encourage you to visit my website, alekazasadi.net slash blog, and download my new guide, The Simple Guide to Building Passive Income. It's completely free, but I think you'll find it useful. Thanks for hanging out with me today, and I'll talk to you next Wednesday.